0: All right, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 12 as we continue our series in Matthew. Now, as we come toward the end of Matthew 12, the trajectory of Jesus' ministry has brought increased opposition to him. His ministry threatens the religious leaders. Their, it threatens their way of life. It threatens their reputation. It threatens their authority. It threatens their traditions. And they, they respond by hurling accusations at him. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a Sabbath breaker. And he's in league with demons. And it isn't long before, as we see in chapter 12, verse 14, that these religious leaders plot To kill Jesus. Now, Matthew wrote his gospel to reveal to us, the readers, those following, who the Savior is. He is the Savior, He's the King, He's the Messiah, He's the gentle, and He's the humble servant who does not break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick. He's the one who offers rest to the weary and freedom from the weight of sin. But the Pharisees and the scribes do not see this. They reject every truth about who Christ is, even as they watch him prove his authority by the miracles that he produces. And in response to their unbelief and accusation, Jesus continues to give them sobering and yet also terrifying warnings. Do not blaspheme the work of the holy spirit he says because that will end for you in eternal death it is a warning not just to the scribes and the pharisees but it's a warning to every generation to every person he describes who will and who will not be condemned earlier in chapter 12 as devin so wonderfully preached last week good tree bad tree good fruit bad fruit a judge a day of judgment awaits all of us, and reveals who we are by the words that we speak. Now, in response to the scribes and Pharisees, and in response in particular to what Devin preached last week from chapter 12, verse 33 to 37, in response to that, the the Pharisees respond to him. They answer him. And let's read how they answer him. Begin in verse 38 of chapter 12 with me. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Father... Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word shows us your glory and your greatness. And it shows us our sinfulness. But it also shows us how kind and merciful you are through sending a Savior. And Lord, as we study your word this morning, Open our eyes and open our hearts and open our ears to once again reflect on the glory of Christ and the goodness he has given to each one of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, In in response, you can see the scribes and the Pharisees, they answer Jesus in response to his talking about good fruit and bad fruit. And they they answer him with this. And when Jesus finished these parables, sorry, (laughs) and then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, in Mark chapter 8, Mark is also detailing this experience. And he writes, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Their, Their motive is clear in this passage. What they really want to do is to trap Jesus and gather evidence against him so they can do what they plotted to do in Earlier in the chapter which has put him to death to destroy him. Their use of the word teacher here is not one of respect. But it is one of sarcasm. The scribes see themselves only as the teachers of Israel. And there's no doubt they do not consider Jesus one of them. But Jesus answers back. But he answered them. And he answers them In some stunning words. And as in the previous passages, Matthew records Jesus' warnings. The scribes and Pharisees, they're the the point of Jesus' warnings, they're the reason he gives these warnings. And it is because of their unbelief and their false repentance, their lack of repentance, that Jesus lays out these consequences for them by illustrating from the Old Testament what was really in their hearts. And so Matthew describes this encounter in in three ways. He, He describes a wicked request, a surprising response, and a sobering reality. First is a wicked request. They demand a sign from heaven in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We we want you to do something. They were asking for another miracle. In other words, Jesus' acts of of healing, raising people from the dead, feeding the 5,000 and turning water into wine, healing lepers, that was not enough. After all... After all he had done, this really is an astonishing request on their part. But Jesus is not a circus performer, and he does not do miracles on demand. They wanted a sign, not to actually believe in Christ, but to test him. And even, I think if Jesus had given them what they had asked for, their hardened hearts would still not believe. Dr. Asa Gray was a friend and contemporary of Charles Darwin. He cared for his friend and Dr. Asa Gray was a Christian. And so he asked his friend Darwin if there was anything that could convince him to believe in God. And Darwin replied, if I could see an angel descend from heaven and have a crowd around me that confirmed that I was not mad, I might consider it. Even there, like the Pharisees, a sign would have not convinced him. Now, God does sometimes give signs to help us. Moses, if you remember, was doubtful. And so God told him to put his hand inside his cloak And pull it back out. And when he did, his hand was leprous white. And then God said, put it back in and pull it out. And it was healed. God said, take your staff and throw it on the ground. And he threw it on the ground and it turned into a snake. And God said, reach down and grab that snake. And he did. And the moment he did, it turned into a staff again. And it helped Moses to believe Gideon did the same when he was faced with with a battle and laying the fleece down and seeing if there would be dew upon it. And then he did it again, and it was dry the next morning with dew all around everywhere else, and it helped Gideon to trust God. But those motives were, were pure motives. They were good motives. God does sometimes give a sign to help. But sometimes we think that we need a sign from God. We sometimes test Christ in our own hearts. We think in our thoughts, I I know you're really with me if you provide. I know you really love me if you do this. I know if you heal, if you whatever. In difficult times, we can be led to test God by asking him for some kind of sign. And like the Pharisees, that really is just a show of unbelief towards the Lord. And and Jesus responds to these Pharisees and scribes. And he says, listen, when you ask for a sign with the wrong motives, this is who you are. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, we don't need a spectacular sign, even in the worst of our trials and sufferings for God to prove that he loves us. For love us, he does. The greatest sign of all has already been given to us. Our salvation, our being transformed and brought out of darkness into the light of God's life. That that is the greatest sign of all. And, And we have even more that God has given us as a sign. He's given us his word. He's given us his church. What, what more do we need? What more can he do for us? Demanding a sign is a sign of unbelief. And that's what was going on with these men, these scribes and Pharisees. Now, unbelief is not just a problem for the unconverted. Unconverted. It, it seeps into our Christian lives more often than we might be aware of. We we all battle unbelief at times. Is is God really here? What what is He doing? I don't understand what He's doing. Why is it that we have to flit about from from place to place to meet as a church? Outside, inside, afternoon, morning, and you just. The temptation to, what is God doing? Does he really care? Is he really involved with us? Or the suffering, the the physical suffering that you might go through, that I might go through. Or just the difficulties of life. Or wanting to be here on time and getting behind the slowest person who has ever walked the earth. (laughs) Which was this afternoon. And trying not to complain in my heart, so Marilyn will not tell me don 't complain in your heart <laughs> she can tell steam coming out of my ears, and I, I I just Lord, really, you know I need to be here on time what what 's the deal and there are ways that we can just express a lack of trust in god 's purposes and God's sovereignty and God's plan. Why, why does he do it this way? Which is just an expression of, God, you are not wise enough to plan this the way I would plan it. I'm kind of wiser than you, which is what the Pharisees and the scribes were saying. Their way of life was the wise way of life, their traditions, their rules, their legalism. They considered wiser than the Saviour standing before them. And so we all battle unbelief. But the question is what more what more do you do you need from God than than just your salvation or your listen, you want a sign from God right here. Open up God's word and you will get a sign from God. And so this, this was a wicked request on behalf of the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus then gives them a surprising response, which is astonishing to them because it's not what they expected. He calls them first and foremost, an evil and adulterous generation and says, you're not getting any sign from me except. The sign of Jonah. Now understand, these scribes in particular, these scribes and Pharisees, they know who Jonah is. They know the book of Jonah. It's in their Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, their Bible. They understood who Jonah was. And you have to understand where Jesus is coming from. This in Mark, Mark 8, it says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit at their stubbornness when they asked him for a sign. It was discouraging for our Lord after all these men had observed that they still demanded more. And his response is a piercing and wicked adulterous generation that you are. You demand a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Now it's helpful to recount who Jonah was. Jonah was a prophet of God, commanded by God to go to Nineveh and preach repentance to Nineveh because they were a wicked city. It was a city filled with Assyrians. It was in Assyria. It was Israel's at that time greatest enemy the Assyrians were hated by all Israelites particularly this prophet he hated the Assyrians and so what does Jonah do he tells God no I'm not going to Nineveh. In fact, what he does is he goes in the opposite direction and he runs to the coast and he jumps on a ship thinking, I can get away from Nineveh as far as I possibly can. I can run from God, which he cannot run from God. And he gets on this ship and they put out to sea and this massive storm comes. And it is clear all will perish. And Jonah, with some degree of nobility at that moment, says, hey, he tells the crew, I'm the problem. I'm running from God. Throw me overboard. And if I was one of those sailors, I would be doing what they did. Sure. Okay. And they did. They tossed him overboard and he gets swallowed by this great fish. And he spends three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish. And then this great fish goes to the shore, vomits Jonah out. And Jonah goes to Nineveh. Now, from about where he is on the shore, unless God had him vomit out 600 miles. It's about a 600-mile journey to where he had to go in Nineveh. So think, he spent three days, three nights in the belly of this great fish, totally bleached by the whale's stomach acid, covered with seaweed, now covered in dust, and he shows up in Nineveh and he says, Repent! And immediately they do. The people of Nineveh, had no idea of their spiritual condition and the judgment that awaited them. But they heard God speak through Jonah. Jonah was certainly a strange sight, but his preaching is what changed them. The sign for the scribes and Pharisees is Jonah himself, who was deep in the belly of the great fish, a story they would well know. They would well know that this man who was dead In the belly of a whale came back to life. And here, for just as Jonah, verse 40, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The significance of the sign of Jonah is his being in the belly of the great fish. Just as the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the divine intervention that brought them both back to life. Each miraculously released from death. We, we know for us this means Christ's resurrection. And this was this Jesus' was Jesus's. Alluding to his resurrection to these unbelievers. But these 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 men, these scribes and Pharisees, they know the story of Jonah, and yet they still do not believe. And he tells them in verse 41 and 42, he goes on, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is telling these men, because you don't believe who I am, the pagan Assyrians of Nineveh who did repent and who did believe will be a testimony against you at the day of judgment. A testimony that condemns your evil and adulterous generation and every generation that follows who do not believe in Christ. Why? Because he says to them, your unbelief blinds you to something greater than Jonah standing before you. The Ninevites believed Jonah And Jesus stands before these men and they don't believe. They don't repent as Nineveh repented. The queen of Sheba traveled over a thousand miles to learn the wisdom of Solomon. And she came away believing. And yet the son of God stands before these men. And they oppose him, and they hate him, and they seek to kill him. J.C. Riles, in his commentary, said this, We should mark how the scribes and Pharisees call upon the Lord to show them more miracles. They pretended that they only wanted more evidence in order to be convinced and become disciples. They shut their eyes to the many wonderful works which Jesus had already done. It was not enough for them that he healed the sick, cleansed the lepers, raised the dead, and driven out demons. They were not persuaded. They demanded more proof. They would not see what our Lord plainly pointed at in his reply. They had no real will to believe. There was evidence enough to convince them, but they had no wish to be convinced. Now, as believers, as Christians... We, we don't identify with these men in the place they are as an evil and adulterous generation because we have been born again. And yet, we battle unbelief at times. We question the Lord's purposes and plans at times. We, we demand from God some kind of sign to prove himself to us Often in the most difficult moments of our lives, understandably, but yet we still demand. And the Lord is is warning these men. This This is the kindness and mercy of God. He is warning these men. He is giving them a warning that they need to repent. And this is a warning to us. This is the mercy and kindness of God to us to say, hey, don't let unbelief. Creep into your life. Don't doubt that God is good because He is always good. Don't doubt that God cares because He always cares. Don't doubt that He will provide because He always provides. Don't doubt that He's present because He is omnipresent, He's everywhere. Now, at times our doubts can be very serious, and sometimes they can just be silly. Before I was a Christian, I demanded a sign from God to believe. I was, it, was at a, it was at a high school Bible study, and somebody showed up with this, this picture. It was one of those optical illusion pictures. And they said, do you see Jesus in the picture? And all these people were going, "Yeah, yeah." And I'm looking at it and I see I just see a blob. Where's Jesus in this picture? And I just and I and I just thought if I can't see Jesus in this picture, I can't believe. God has to open my eyes to this picture, this stupid picture. <laughs> I got online this week to look at that picture. (laughs) I finally saw Jesus. (laughs) Listen, Jesus in his mercy warns these men and even tells them something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. And yet they still did not believe. These Pharisees wanted a circus performer to come up with another miracle. And that's not who Jesus is. And so what does he do? He continues to warn them by telling them a parable. Kind of like a, a bit of a ghost story that illustrates the spiritual danger that faces every generation. Verse 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And then he, he bookends what he began with, so also will it be with this evil generation. The people of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba responded in repentance and faith, but not the scribes and Pharisees. They trusted in their own godliness, their rule following, their traditions. They believed they were godly because of their outward appearance. Now, tragically, tragically, many Live this way today. Like this man in this parable. Once the demon left his home. He reformed himself. He swept his house. He put it in order. He cleaned it up. He reformed himself. But the warning Jesus gives us. It doesn't last. Eventually this this man in this parable returns to his former way of life, but even with more wickedness than before. Jesus says this man's current state is worse than the first. This is who the scribes and Pharisees are, Jesus is saying, but it's also who we see today in our own churches. People who are reformed, they reform themselves, they, they have the appearance of godliness, but there's no power within. God has not invaded them and their state eventually ends up worse than what they began. They are, they are an evil and adulterous generation. Not just those in this parable, but even today who appear reformed on the outside and are unregenerated on the inside. And this is true, like I said, of every generation. Many, many hold to a form of godliness with no real faith. They've, they've swept the house clean. They've put themselves in order, but they are spiritually empty inside. And eventually, their way of life crumbles. And we read about that, and Devin will be preaching about that soon in the, in the parable of the sower. And they are worse off than before they reformed themselves And sometimes the wickedness of some of these reformed is so tragic, they become former professing Christians who describe describe themselves as deconverted or deconstructed. They appeared for some time, sometimes for many years as disciples of Christ. Their behavior was reformed on the outside, but there was no genuine transformation on the inside. And that's what makes up an evil generation. And that's who these scribes and Pharisees are. And that's who we do not want to be. We do not want to be reformed on the outside, but no life on the inside. These scribes and Pharisees belonged to God's chosen people. But they were far from God. And and that's where we have to guard our own hearts. And take this warning to, to heart for us. Not being religious. Not filling our lives with religious things. Prayer is good. Giving is good. Serving is good. Coming to church is good. Singing and worshiping God is good. But... There are many who do that, who are not alive on the inside. And this is a warning. This is a warning. There are are many. I was was converted in 1976. And shortly afterwards, I went to a thing called Jesus 76. It was a festival in Mercer, Pennsylvania with 40,000 people all excited. It was a time of revival. And I can sadly have to say to this day that most of the people that I went with on that trip no longer are following Christ. But if you had seen them in 1976, they would have been the most passionate, excited, pursuing Christians who seemed to be true disciples. And yet today, I know that some of them are nowhere near God. And that is the warning of this parable. This parable hammers home the lesson that we cannot be neutral towards Jesus. Once a person attempts that, Jesus says, they will end up worse than when they began. So it will be with this evil generation. So in the mercy of God, listen to the warning that God brings in this parable. Jesus' message is that self-reformation is deadly. The Pharisees needed a reformation from above and from within by Christ. This was a stern warning and a forceful call to repentance. We cannot self-reform. We must be transformed by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now... This passage, don't be fearful about this passage like this, but be sobered and warned. If we're genuinely born again, we cannot lose our salvation. God is faithful to complete in us what he began in us. But take the sobering reality of this passage, that those who look good and reformed on the outside are not May not be truly regenerated on the inside. But there's so much hope in this passage. There's great hope in this passage. Because in the midst of this warning, we see the heart of this passage. Something greater has come. Something greater. Now, it might seem odd that Jesus didn't say someone greater has come. But something, the word something points not just to Jesus the person, but to his entire work and ministry. His incarnation, the inauguration of his kingdom, his power, his healing, his authority, his mercy, his death, his victory over death, his resurrection, his saving grace, and his promise to return. Something greater has come. And that's where our hope lies. And that's where we rest. And that is the mercy of God in the midst of a warning. He is greater than Jonah in his call to repentance, and he surpasses Solomon in his wisdom. He is greater than all the Old Testament and New Testament figures. He is Christ, the risen King, the Savior, the Messiah, who who Matthew has been laying out for us from point by point. So what is our application? How, how How do we bring application to this, to our lives from this passage? Well, first, don't trust in self-reformation. Heed Christ's warning. Don't trust in self-reformation. You don't reform yourself. Yes, you obey and you follow Christ as Peter tells us in in 1 Peter 1 or 2.21. Yes, we, we follow in his steps. But don't trust in self-reformation. Secondly, make your calling and election sure. Peter goes on in 2 Peter 1 to say, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And finally, finally, as we sing in just a moment, rejoice that something greater has come. Father, thank you that you have come. You have come in your son. Jesus Christ, and you have come to set us free from our sins. You have come to set us free from the evil and adulterous generation of this world. You have called us into your marvelous light, and you have transformed us. Help us, we ask, as we, as we go from this place today to live in the good of that transformation and to, to, to just obey And to embrace the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That we might bring glory to your name. In Christ's name. Amen.